if you tell us you have to develop a set of clubs for them and a set of clubs for them, there's cost there that we will pass on. So Because those guys don't pay you, right? They don't the pay most part. Absolutely. We so pay somebody them. has to eat that. Someone has to eat that and it's, <laughs> and it's not going to be us. All right, everybody. How you living? Uh, welcome back to No Putts Given. Episode, I have no idea. 100-something-ish. Still not the big reveal yet, Tony. Yeah. But Although, I mean, Chris is here, so well, other Chris is here. That's that's big reveal. This is the big reveal. We have the one, the Gets only. Gets us off the hook, right? <laughs> exactly. All things Mizuno Golf. I could throw out a bunch of titles. He's had them all, pretty much. Chris Fushell from Mizuno is going to help us understand some things today. So... What's Welcome, Chris. Like? <laughs> nice to have you. Oh, it's good to be here. I'm excited. It's always fun getting on here, talking about, and trying to figure out where this conversation is going to head. So I'm looking forward. To it. <laughs> I can't. I can't know. even tell you where it's going to begin. Um, but yeah. I'm going. I'm going to throw you a softball right away. Shoot. Something super easy. I heard that you were the most underqualified applicant in the history of Mizuno when you first came out of college. Um, <laughs> true or false? And how on earth did you get into this stuff? Yeah, that's a hundred percent accurate. I, I'll say I have. Um, I started as the most underqualified, and then I reapplied with slightly more qualifications later. No, it's funny. So I I grew up in Atlanta, Mizuno um, Golf Space on the north side of Atlanta. When I was in high school, you know, I'm one of those kids who, like everybody, kind of tongue in cheek, reaches out to a club OEM. Oh, you need some club testers? Me and your me and my buddies, we're the guys to do that. Which went. <laughs> completely unresponded to as it should as it always does do you get those today do you still have people reach out oh absolutely that that's the running joke hey you need you need a high handicapper to test those irons i'm your guy you know (laughs) you get that all the time (laughs) but then um you know fast forward a couple years later from there and i was graduating with an engineering degree and moving back to atlanta looking for looking for a foot in the door at a club oem just because i has always have always been passionate about golf clubs, and I came across a job posting within Mizuno for a club engineer, which is like, hey, that's a, a dream job. That's perfect. Only it re- only it requires you know a master's in this, ten years experience in that, all this stuff. And I'm I'm not even that old. Like I I don't have enough age years to have the amount of experience that it required. But I applied anyway, and they said you are not getting that job. How about this lesser job? Maybe you can come talk to us about that. And that was my foot in at the door at Mizuno as a testing engineer. Okay. Because there isn't, like, we, I talked about this with, with pretty much everybody in R&D, but there's no, you don't go to college for golf club design, right? Those, those programs don't exist. And I wish they did. It would be, a, I would enjoy that class. That would actually be a really fun one. But I, you know, I ended up in a, uh, with a major where I, I went through, I started electrical engineer, I did civil engineering, I did some mechanical. And it just so happened that I took like all the right classes. I took some metallurgical classes like material sciences. I took a bunch of physics classes. I took a bunch of like engineering and actually like CAD courses. So actually learning a lot of the 3D 3D design stuff, none of it pointing directly towards golf, but all of it can be applied to golf. So you're right, there's no like really good path into golf, but if you pick your courses wisely, you can build your own pretty good one, actually. And not just for, you know, you didn't go to 
Sisters of the Poor Engineering School. You're you're a Vandy guy. You're a con- you're a anchor down. Anchor down. You know if if you can't play football, you might as well be smart, right? That's what we're going for. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and if they hadn't beat my beloved CSE Rams last year, I could I could make far more jokes around. You know, they could probably use a couple more skinny engineers out on the field, but. Um, <laughs> You know, you, you guys put it to us this year. That's uh, um, damn. You were one of our few, which I, I would, you actually, that game got me very excited about the season, only to then enter SEC play, which did not go well for us. <laughs> no, the whole season didn't go well for us. Um, but, uh, you know, that's so this brings you now, boom, that was what, 2003, 2004, maybe? 2000? Uh, start early 2004 is when I started with Mizuno. Yeah, so I, I literally just hit 18 years, which is like a ridiculous thing to think about. Yeah, I mean, and during that time, maybe just brief overview, what are the different roles you had? Because, you know, you did a lot with club, club design and dogs and things that bark. Fucking um, dogs. You, so you started started running this engineering facility, right? You're a test right. engineer for yeah. That. So and then, well, at that time, that was right when Mizuno was actually building a testing facility. So okay. obviously, we're a Japanese company based based out of Osaka. We all of our testing had always been done in Japan, which is great, except that you know we're really making you know some footholds within the U.S. market at the time. It was really a push to become more of a global brand, become less of just that Japanese brand, and how do we understand all the different markets? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll say at the time, product was dramatically different across the regions. So, like, the Japan JDM product was totally different than the U.S. product for the majority of of companies, us being one of them. So, with that in mind, we wanted to build a test facility in the States, and that was really my first role. I was a testing engineer, who would go and basically buy everything that was out there and then test it, whether that be you know organizing player testing, hitting on a robotic golfer, doing doing all those different things just to understand what others are doing and working on our prototypes, which was a, you know a dream job as a golf gearhead. So I did that for I'd say I guess officially my title changed about three or four years later. I'd been shadowing uh, David Llewellyn who still currently the uh, head of Mizuno USA and actually Western World Engineering, um, basically just trying to learn everything I could from him about the engineering side of the world and how do you design a club. So it was the perfect like apprenticeship to learn what you need to know and all the basics to start club engineering, which is what I did from, I'd call it 2007 until 2018. So I was doing a lot of, a lot of the design work irons, wedges, woods, fitting tools, you name it. Like, I, I think I touched every club in the bag. Um, and then over the last couple of years, I've moved into a role where now I sort of live in between R&D and the business side and the marketing side. Like, I'm kind of that the, the hub of that wheel, kind of working with what do we need to hit all of our strategic goals? What does R&D need to be working on? What can I help them with? And what can, you know, what insights can I bring? And what how can we utilize the technologies they're developing to make sure we're bringing the right clubs to the market? So two questions, and I know Tony wants to jump in on some stuff here too, but so during that time period, they said you developed, designed a lot of, uh, a lot of clubs. Mizuno 
for for those of us and and full disclosure i'm a mizuno homer i've loved mizuno irons have played them since you know as far back um as i can remember and i have some of my favorites but what is your either favorite or what you feel is like the best iron you designed over those 14 years what is the absolute you know you're gonna you're just gonna pin that thing right to your uh you know right to your refrigerator every time you walk in you and your wife wave at it like oh i designed that <laughs> i've you got know, what is that one i have two answers which i know is a cop out but i've got i've got two answers is like the two Tony's that I'm used to that <laughs> is one of them the jpx easy that's <laughs> absolutely it's both answers. The first and the second easy, right? Orange, <laughs> No, so the first one, uh, MP62, was a product that I absolutely loved working on. You know, it, it's the look that I love, the head size, the shape, the feel. And that was one where, you know, I was working with Luke Donald at the time, uh, was right when he became world number one, was working with him on those clubs. And designing a lot of the things that he really loved about the MP33s he used to play that he transitioned into 32s and then worked his way through our line to develop that iron really just for him as one of the best ball strikers in the world and the top player in the world. Like to me, MP62, that was everything I wanted in an iron except I wanted the Mizuno logo inside the cavity and out, or versus outside the cavity. That was like the one small little battle I lost on that. But um, that was a, a manufacturing reason why it couldn't be there. It would have had to change some things. Ultimately, that was that was a great product working on that. And then the other is the JPEX 900 Tour, which was the first, I guess I'd say the first real player's JPX model. And it was kind of a rethinking of what is JPX. It's not just distance. It's not just high tech. It's not just game improvement. It was bringing that to the player side of the world. And the 900 Tour, it was funny, that was right at the time when like Nike was leaving the hard goods industry. And that product really like fit a perfect, it was the right place at the right time with the right product where it became like the go-to iron on the PGA Tour for a number of years. And that, you know, a lot of it was people could play whatever they wanted and it had the look, it had the feel, it had the performance. It won the, it won a bunch of majors in a really short period of time, which was really cool because I had never had an iron that I'd worked on win a major. So to me, like that, that's the one I have on my wall, but the 62 is the one I have on my map. So. <laughs> well, interesting. <laughs> Number one player in the world, best one of the best ball strikers, right? You mentioned Luke Donald, and this is uh, effectively a muscle cavity mm-hmm. design, not a pure muscle back. And I think you even mentioned one time before that you, you had a set of uh, MP32s for Luke, but modified them to have the MP33 sole. Yeah. So that kind of gave him the turf interaction that he kind of liked. So there are some of those kind of kind of one-offs in there, but interesting, you mentioned the 900 as well. Obviously, Brooks Kepka won a bunch. Um, with that particular iron, a lot of other people. Everything for a little one, while. I mean, absolutely every everything. And so you talk about tour validated tour products. He was never paid a dime by Mizuno to to play those irons. Yet he chose to to do that. And, and uh, that was and one of the really cool things. Is it's almost like he found them and said. And even though, like you know, I think I've told this story a little bit before, you kind of got to tiptoe a little bit being that I worked for the company, but you know, it it was a a set of irons designed for a specific player 
whether he knew it or not, and he found them on his own, which to me, it's like, it spoke to the design was right. The, you know, all of the thinking that went into it was the right thinking. Mm-hmm. So, so can you... an interesting point, though, right? Yeah. You have this guy that you sort of slid into an iron, a little under the radar, kind of intentionally, but, you know, you weren't paying him. Mm-hmm. And, and probably, I, I would say, not probably, I, I would argue that that is the guy who has been the most successful with a Mizuno product on tour. And so, I mean, how much value is there really? What is the ROI f- for you guys and, and in a broader sense for <laughs> throwing money at a tour guy and, and these endorsement deals that we see? It's, there's no way to get a, like a, a, at least I don't know the way to get a really firm ROI on any of these things. You know, it's, play people love to say i'm not influenced by the tour i don't care what they play but they are you know it's like the the tour is the ultimate like box you must check you know it's it's hard to it's hard to boost tour level performance when no one plays it on tour you know it's something that you can say on one breath but then at the same time you know unless there's somebody backing it then then people are going to question it and, you know, we saw it with, you know, Mizuno's had a, a long history of our irons are in play on tour, but our woods weren't. And that's even by players we were paying. So what does that say about your iron? And ultimately, to me, that was our contracts weren't written right. We weren't putting the emphasis that behind it. And once that changed, our driver momentum has shifted. So, I mean, to say what's the ROI on like a tour player, it's hard to say. But to me, like just the little bit of peace of mind that somebody found this, chose it, and played it because it worked the best for them, there's no more credibility than that. Like, that's the ultimate, that's the pinnacle. So that's interesting, though, right? Because that's the, that's sort of the the unpaid aspect of it, right? Isn't that, exactly. would you say yeah. that's kind of ideal, right? When a guy you're not paying sort of stumbles into your product one way or another? It's ideal, but it's fragile, you know, because the, the, tomorrow somebody could pay him. So, you know, it's, it's something you have to very carefully hang your hat on. You know, if you put too much weight to it, then you stand, you could get bit by it and you can only use it to such a level. Like you can't boast about it too much. You know, ultimately it comes down to, you you don't want to say being cheap, but a little bit being cheap, you know, not paying for the top talent sometimes, which again, you know, Mizuno is a company who, we have historically been one who doesn't sign a top player. We'll sign, you know, lower players and work their way up. Like when Luke, when we signed Luke, he wasn't number one in the world. He worked his way up to number one with us. Stacy Lewis, same way, worked her way up to number one with us. When Brooks found the irons, he wasn't number one. He worked his way up to number one playing a lot of our stuff. So, you know, for a company that doesn't pay a ton, um, yeah, it's it's the ultimate in validation of what we're doing. So not not hanging your hat on tour play maybe as much as as some of your competitors do, uh, as I'm sure you're aware. There is now a competing golf tour uh, <laughs> yes. that has some has a Where? little bit of baggage attached to it, to say the <laughs> least. So, Money I mean, bag. how much? <laughs> yeah, how much? How much is the emergence, or you know, what, what certainly seems to be a rapidly emerging live tour, change that? that ROI and, and even sort of the, 
the tour equation in terms of you know whether or not you're willing to to shell out money to have these guys play your product because ideally on tv i'm guessing youtube maybe doesn't count nearly as much yeah it's a, to my honest answer i don't have a good feel for it yet i don't have a good feel for what the impact is going to be you know we've got uh a couple of players who were playing our stuff and couple guys actually uh, i guess two guys under contract who are now members of the live tour um what that means going forward honestly i have no idea like you know just just thinking of historically how contracts have been written you know we we base contracts off of pga tour appearances official world golf ranking like this is where you set your bars to what are you going to make next year what bonuses do you get are you on the Ryder Cup? Do you make the FedEx Cup? All these things that are no longer in play. So it could give you an out if you want out. But just saying, oh, well, we're just going to use that out might not be the right move. So I don't honestly, I have no idea where it's all going to land right now. We haven't really had any firm conversations with anybody about it. Like we're not the type who's going to say, hey, you know, X player, you go play over there. We're cutting you. We we haven't done anything like that, and I don't think we plan to do anything like that. So again, I, it's we just want to see where this is all going to shake out, and I I don't know. Fair. Yeah, yeah, it seems. I mean, it seems like there's some wait and see by everybody, like yeah. waiting to look and see. Hey, if Callaway does this, if Taylor Made does this, if somebody else does this, then you might see. Ping Mizuno act a certain way. Yep. I mean, how much of that is hedging your bets to to maybe wait for some cues from other OEMs as opposed to yeah, we're not going to send a tour truck over there for for every event because that's logistically doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But on the other hand, we're not just going to say hey, you signed up, you know, your PJ Tour contract is now void with them, so we're dropping you too. You know, we um. The, the players that we had play over there, they aren't our biggest players, which is good, which kind of allows us to take a little bit of a step back and wait and see approach. You know, there's a certain OEM who has one of their top guys, maybe their top two guys going over. I am really curious how that's going to play out. So it's almost like we get, we get to see from other case studies how we're going to react. How happy are you that that's not your situation? Oh, yeah, like, totally. You're number one, number two. Like. <laughs> because it's a no-win situation for for anybody involved. You know, if you if you take a hard line in the sand, then I don't know. Again, like, I mean, I, I get what Norman's doing. I get the competition. I get letting the players be free agents. I get what the tour's doing, protecting their own. Like, I don't want to have to pick sides, you know, and... I, I'm very happy that I'm not the one in the situation trying to see where it's all going to play out. Yeah, no doubt. I, uh, did you, how much did y'all watch? That's what I'm curious. Zero. Zero. Is that by like purposely I'm not going to watch or is that you just weren't at that? Well, I don't, I don't watch a lot of golf outside of a, of a major championship anyway. Like I'll, okay. I'll watch legitimately three of the four majors and, and maybe a little bit of the players and the, something's going on on like a really cool golf course. Maybe I'll, mm-hmm. I'll check that out. But for the most part, I'm, I'm not a guy who watches 
what I would describe as the PGA Tours filler content. Right. And so fundamentally, when you look at what Live is, in my opinion, like it, it doesn't tackle the PGA Tours fundamental problem, which is most of the tournaments really aren't that interesting, aren't worth watching for. You know, there's no real excitement value. <laughs> there's really nothing. There's no history to be made, history to be won, if you will. And so like the entire Live series is basically the equivalent of PGA filler content for more money. So it's like funny because that's, that's not going to interest me. I'm a filler watcher. Like you know, I I come in on Thursday morning and I have I have my my streaming package and I'll I'll watch whatever a featured group is. Like I'm I'm kind of the opposite end of you where I I think I probably consume a little bit more of the actual golf out of curiosity. I mean, I, I was driving on Thursday morning. I had I had to make a four hour drive, so I was like, you know what, I'm going to put it on YouTube and just listen and see what's going on. So I. I tried to consume a little of it. I did turn it on on Saturday just to see what was going on. I'll say I was half interested. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's, again, the field didn't get me excited. So that, that was that to me, that was a big part of it. You know, if, had it been Bill, DJ and whoever going right, right down the stretch, it might've been another story, but the field didn't have me as excited as, the, the Canadian Open. I mean, I I got way more into the last couple holes of the Canadian than I did the last mm -hmm. few holes of the Live. Yeah, and I'm probably in between, maybe Chris, more towards your side. Like I'll have streaming on Thursday, Friday. If I'm at home, if I and hopefully I'm on the golf course one of the two days on the weekend or whatever. Like prefer to be out there. But if I'm at home, you know, we'll have golf on pretty, pretty you know routinely. My wife loves to take naps mm -hmm. to it. On, on the I do too. <laughs> there is no better. There's no better. You know, sleep-inducing uh, uh, TV than daytime uh, PGA Tour Sunday afternoon, right? Yep. And so, but I do. I like to. I like to watch it. Well, my biggest thing is I like watching events of consequence, mm -hmm. like when something matters. Whether it's the NHL playoffs. I don't watch a lot of hockey, but the Avs are in the Stanley Cup Finals, and our whole family's kind of rallied around that. Watching the College World Series, seeing yep. Tennessee get beat. I love watching things of consequence. So I watched more of the Curtis Cup this weekend, mm -hmm. watching some of the best lady players on the planet at a great venue at Marion. That was awesome. I love mm -hmm. watching events of consequence where they care so deeply about the results. They want to win. They want to play, whether it's beating, you know, GB and I, or it's you know, like you said, Rory and and uh, Tony Finau and Justin Thomas um, yesterday as the, as the final three ball group. Um, to me, that's far more compelling than you know watching Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers and totally. these made up matches. And that's what I feel like it, it, it is right now. It's I think Steve Stricker said it really well that it kind of feels like a kind of like a televised member guest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, at, at best. And, you know, and that doesn't even get into the the credibility issues around the organization, where the money's coming from, all of those right. things. Just as a product itself, the lack of compelling narratives around winning and losing uh, drive me to say, no, nah, I'm, I'm not in. If, if I'm going to spend my time doing something, watching it, I want it to be of consequence. I want it to yeah. matter somehow other than, you know, Henry Duplessis or, you know, whatever his name was. Oh, one, <laughs> like, great, great for right. you, great for your family, 
Some dude shot 87, whatever, walks away with 120,000. More money than Tony and I. You know, like, come on. Wish I could make that kind of money for shooting an 87. (laughs) Right? Because I got that game locked down. Right. (laughs) You know, and I, so it, it, it goes back to this authenticity piece. And here's a weird segue for you. Like, Mizuno, with its forgings, does not have a written agreement, correct? With Chuo, it's still correct. a long-standing verbal agreement. So the, the, the secret sauce of Mizuno is what? How would you describe the, the secret sauce? You know, nothing feels like Mizuno. Why not? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes down to a lot of how we engineer our clubs. Uh, the, the Chuo relationship is one that, you know, we've had for, I believe it's just over like 50 years right now. And it... It is. You're right. It's a, it's a handshake agreement of we'll produce these and we'll work together to basically evolve forging. So you're right that you know we don't own Chuo. Chuo doesn't own us. Like we, it, we are two separate entities working together with the sole purpose of like bettering forging. And that, with that in mind, if you look at like the Grain Flow Forge patent and the Grain Flow Forge HD patent we're both listed on that patent. So we're working together to create these. So it's something that, to me, it speaks a lot to the Japanese culture and, and basically how they do business and how we work together to to evolve this. And, you know, it's fun because forging, you know, it's an art that goes way, way back, you know, back to the Middle Ages of forging. But to, to look at how it's how it's done now, with how the materials are used, how pro- the different processes have evolved, all the different things you can do to a forging, it barely even resembles, other than the actual strike of the hammer, other than that, there's nothing that is to chance like it used to be. So I think the way that the, um, the process has evolved has been something that's really cool because we've engineered a feel, a performance, something like molecular bits of the forging on a somewhat archaic method. You know, we've taken an old school method and really modernized it. So that's, to me, that's the heart of what we do is the the engineering, the performance, you know, what, how can we squeeze every last bit of performance, whether that be a field performance, a distance performance, however you want to define that, how can we squeeze and engineer every last bit out of the golf club? Well, so, it's funny you mentioned squeezing performance out of equipment <laughs> because we are, you know, Mike Stachura posted it yesterday, I'm sure you saw, and I'm sure you you received the notices, but our, our friends at the USGA are floating more ideas of, you know, I call it tire kicking, right? They're they're kicking tires on, on ideas to address the distance problem. And before mm-hmm. we get into the specifics of this latest round of, of tire kicking, let me ask you. Do you feel like there is a distance problem that needs to be addressed? My answer has always been no. But for the Uh-oh. first time Uh-oh. ever, I, the first time I ever questioned it, honestly, I can tell you exactly when it was. And it was about a week and a half ago when I watched <laughs> the final group coming down at the NCAAs. And I watched the the slowest man in that group off 18T was about 185 ball speed. I watched Gordon Sargent, the freshman from Vanderbilt, rip it at 191 and 194 in not a Bryson type 194. It was a smooth 194 right off, you know, 
with all the pressure on and just going back, I was like, man, that's a, that's really fast. When, and I went back and you know found the Bryson hitting at Bay Hill clip and his ball speed was 194. And that was him juiced up screaming. And this freshman just did that. And he's not alone. He's having a little it's bump a, off the top, yeah, right? It, it was unbelievable. So to me, that was the first time, honestly, where I came in, I was talking to some guys in here and I was like, that's ridiculous speed. So I've never wanted to say yes, but that got me thinking. So I'm still going to say there's not a distance problem. Athletes are going to be athletes. They're going to get faster and faster, but they're getting ridiculous, you know? So let me ask you then a couple of the things, the, the tires kicked in this, this <laughs> latest kind of notice from the USGA See, limiting CT and, and not by a little bit. We're talking about going from, you know, with tolerances 257 now to a number that's below 200. Mm-hmm. And then on the MOI side, going from 5,900 to a number that is half of that and then some. So, like, what do you, mm-hmm. what do you think from, from your perspective? And, again, you know, to be clear, as Chris and I talked about a couple of shows ago, this is all being talked about under the guise of a, a model local role right. where it would be up to the tour, presumably the PGA tour, which seems to me would be a, a bad time to <laughs> to try and put a governor on anything. Right. But you know, any other tour as well to implement this rule and then put you in the position of potentially having to make two completely separate lines of equipment. But you know, more to the point, like what do you what do you think kind of the impact of those two changes would have in the real world? I mean I I hate rollbacks. I think rollbacks are bad news. You know, if you, if you want to put a limit at something as in terms of where it currently is, that's one thing. Rollbacks are just messy because how do you implement it? Like uh, to me, I don't like rollbacks. So a rollback of the CT, I don't like it. Um, you know, to basically say that I, I now will hit it shorter than I did legally a year ago to me, I don't like. And a CT rollback would do that. I mean, that's 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 directly an impact of how fast can the ball legally come off the face. Where right now a rule has already been set, so we're living within that rule. I I really don't like that. Um, an MOI change. Um, the better players, these guys who are bombing it, aren't playing anywhere near 5,900 MOI. I mean, look, they're getting 185 ball speed with a three wood that has an MOI that it's. <laughs> You know, it doesn't matter. I don't think the MOI one matters that much. I think the CT one is a total rollback. I mean, obviously, it is a total rollback, which I don't like. And ultimately, you know, the if you have two sets of rules, I get it that golf doesn't want to have two sets of rules. Two sets of equipment, it's tough because ultimately, I mean, we're all businesses. We're going to push that cost of those two sets of equipment onto the consumer that's just going to happen so you know like if football changes a rule and now they do instant replay and they didn't that doesn't cost anybody anything if if you tell us you have to develop a set of clubs for them and a set of clubs for them there's cost there that we will pass on so because those guys don't pay you right they don't the pay most part. absolutely we so pay somebody them. has to eat that someone has to eat that and it's, <laughs> and it's not going to be us i hate to say that as from the business side it's not Maybe one day UNICEF will get into the golf club. Can you put any context onto this? Like, 
Is there, for, for the people who are watching and listening, can you put any context to, from a ball pe- speed perspective, what does sub 200 look like? What is what is a real world comparison to that? And the same thing with the MOI. Is there a real world comparison where you're going from something that, that pushes the limit like a, a Ping G425 Max or a, a PXG <clears throat> XF to something? What is, like, how far back are we going? What is what is a club that delivers comparable numbers? I mean, for, for ball speed, CORs have been pretty high for a long time. So, But, you know, to, to put measure, measurables in terms of, like, what you'd see on a launch monitor, obviously, you know, the, the rule as it's written right now is, I think the actual rule is 0.822 equals 239 CT points, but you can go up to 0.83, which equals 257. So, I mean, again, so that is, what is that? 239 to 257 is 18 CT points equals 0.08 miles per hour. So then if you were to then dial that back to sub 200, so let's see, that's another, you're talking to 30 about five miles an hour, right? Yeah, you, you get a couple miles an hour. So, I mean, that's that's a measurable difference. A couple miles an hour, you'll, you're absolutely going to see that. If one driver hits it a couple miles an hour faster than the other, you're buying the one that hits it faster because that's, that's speed, that's potential. So, I mean, that's a measurable thing. What's what's the club that measures it? That I'm not sure right now. Um, I mean, like if you if you look at like a, a thick faced forged iron, its CT is about 0.77. So, you know, if you're getting down to like I, again, I don't I, I'd have to do the math. I don't know what the exact numbers are, what the what that CT equates to in COR, but it'd be like hitting an iron off the tee in some cases. Like a game-improved iron, right? Like a, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I again, I hate that. Um, in terms of, like, MOI, it's funny what MOI does, how it ebbs and flows from year to year. You know, you'll have, you, you've talked about, like, some of the ping, some of the PXGs with really high MOIs, down to then you'll see one of the best-selling drivers in most recent years, an SLDR, which had a crap MOI, you know, almost <laughs> no MOI. So, you know, it's <laughs> MOI, took MOI out of your other clothes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's it MOI was a net loss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's that one's the really hard one to like quantify what that'll do, but it'll make players play different. You know, you saw what happened when when players when high handicaps played a club like an SLDR. They had to do a couple of things. They had to add more loft to try to get spin to it, which was a spin thing. But at the same time, you know, adding that spin makes it play a little bit bigger also. So ultimately, it's going to bring distance down. Um, I don't know. I don't like rollbacks. I'll, I'll complain about them nonstop. But as, a, as an engineer who's always trying to advance, to then say you get to go backwards, that's, that sucks. How is mostly a club guy? Are you, you, you feel better about something that would kind of change the way they test the golf ball you feel a little better about that idea yeah absolutely right <laughs> <laughs> there, there's some good you, you hate to be all conspiracy theorists but you know there's there's a lot of uh big ball people who are in play in some big high up roles and some some big organizations so <laughs> yeah what does you know i guess where does the power lie in this conversation with the USGA and the RNA, I mean, they're rulemaking bodies. And like I've said for a, a long time, sometimes the biggest problem with rulemaking bodies is they feel compelled to make rules, right? Mm-hmm. Like, 
hey, here's what we do. We got to change something up. We got to do this. Like, otherwise, what are we doing? Right. And then you have, you know, equipment manufacturers, Mizuno, Titleist, Ping, TaylorMade, Callaway, so on and so forth. Where do they have to listen to you? Or do you think they're already down this runway a little bit of like, hey, we're already going to probably do these things, mm -hmm. but we're going to let you notice and comment for X amount of time in order to say, hey, you know, we had a process. This is a bona fide process, and here are the conclusions that we reach. Do I mean, do they really actually have to listen to Chris Foschel and what, what he thinks? Do they have to? No. I actually do feel like they listen to us more than they used to, though. I mean, I'll, I'll say it feels like, and, and maybe that's from the, the equipment side, like the OEMs getting together as a, as with a stronger, you know, unified voice and stuff like that. But I feel like for a while, you know, in, you know, in being receiving the USGA notifications of areas of interest for the past 18 years, area of interest used to mean this is a rule in nine months. It used to, like, you could set your watch to it. Now, I don't think that's quite the case. Now, I feel like that because it's getting into harder to implement, trickier things, you know, potential rollbacks. So I feel like now there is a little bit more openness to discussion, which is a good thing for us all. You know, I don't feel like they are just going to slap a rule on it without much thought behind what's what, where that affects things downstream. So I'll say I think us working with the governing bodies is, is in a good spot. Whether ultimately they're going to land on doing something, that's going to be their call. But we're going to do whatever we can to try to do what we think makes golf easier. You know, our goal is to make golf easier. Their job is to say we can't let GPX it get easy. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so right. there's, there's speaking of take from those sides. Yeah, and and I think the other thing is that I mean, this notice and comment period is through what, September or something. At which point in time. I mean, we're still several years off before Maybe. something could be. Maybe, right. <laughs> well, I'm including a period of time for litigious behavior. Right. Because I think, I think regardless of if they try to make any of these larger rollbacks, larger things, my best guess is that it's going to lead to some type of litigious um, you know, process. Uh, I think that's, that's likely. But you mentioned, Tony, JPXEZ. Um, <laughs> What are the best and worst? Because being a Japanese company, this is one of my favorite things, is with Japanese yeah. websites and things, names get lost in translation, right, all the time. And this can be difficult to name products. And I know you and Tony were able to go to Japan a couple of years ago and see mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff behind the scenes. And I would love to hear from both of you. What are the best and worst names that have gotten lost in translation from, <laughs> uh, from the Japanese group to the to the u.s group you know there there's obviously i know tony's head is right where mine is because i think we've tweeted each other this picture back and forth like <laughs> so five times. times the the wedge called the big sneeze to me is fantastic i don't know where big sneeze comes from i don't know the origin of it i don't know how that who knows where it came from but big sneeze is fantastic if we could name I think, like big sneeze was part of <laughs> 
that was part of a product line, right? There was Big Sneeze. My favorite sat alongside it in the line, the, the donkey shovel. The donkey shovel. <laughs> legitimately. Like that, that is amazing to think, but that is that is not some stuff I'm making up here. That is legitimately a Mizuno golf product. Oh, yeah, shovel. absolutely. We went to market with the donkey shovel thinking this is, this is going to – we got it this time. <laughs> this is the one right here. <laughs> And it's funny, there's a third one. There's a third one in that lineup that I never remember the name of because it's it's like it's it's kind of bad, but it's not Big Sneeze or Donkey Yeah, Shovel. these it's, other two are so bad. <laughs> what could what could Big Sneeze I'm trying to think, like sometimes you can see where you know it, it just got lost in connection. It was just one syllable or kind of thing off, and I can see where the idea of like a wedge, shovel, something, you know, like ground digging implement. I can get between that and Tony's kind of an ass sometimes, so ass shovel. I I mean, I I can kind of resolve that one, but big sneeze, I got nothing. There's the like the joke of when you get a super high lofted wedge, it's like the cocaine. It goes straight up your nose. It goes so it goes up so high. Maybe there's something there. I don't know. I'm so not... here's my theory on the big okay. sneeze. <laughs> I like that one. I like the So I think I think the big <laughs> sneeze great. is is probably a bunker specialty club. So let's okay. start there. That's my okay. guess. And like you know, like you big sneeze, right? Things just go flying out of your mouth, all the spit, like everything, just this stream. Same thing with the bunker sand when you hit the the big sneeze. It's like <laughs> so. It's more like an like a description of what's going to happen. Like the the ball's going to come out like a big giant sneeze. This is going to yeah. Be it's awful. just like with all this other stuff around it. Yeah, I would buy that. It, it's not that. elegant. It's by no means elegant, but it's it's the only thing that I can. I can kind of make it, sense out of it. It needs a late night infomercial to describe why everybody needs the big sneeze, right? <laughs> I think what it needs is a t-shirt and a comeback. I totally agree with you there. <laughs> you were close, right? You were we, well, you, you can, so close with the ES wedge. Like you could have DS wedged it and we'd have been right back to where I have to be. snuck some some names or tried to sneak some names through multiple times. And we're always right at the eleventh hour. Somebody's like, "Wait a minute! I see what you did here. That's not <laughs> going to be a good one." What What was your best one that got nixed at the eleventh hour? Well, the ES was DS, and and so it was going to be Donkey Shovel. Well, no, it was going to be mean, dynamic stability because oh, it's... Yes, yes, of course it was. <laughs> of course it was. You got to come up with something, but yes, deep down, yes. it's totally the Donkey Shovel. <laughs> yes. Damn it. And they said no to that. So what else good. did they say no to? What else did they say no to? I'm trying to think if, you know, we, we've we had gotten... to fight for years to get your font, right? Yeah, the font yeah. was a fight. The font's always a fight. Um, and it's so funny how we'll, we are the king of let's make a rule on ourselves that we have to follow for no apparent reason. So, and, and, that's, and I'm sure that... Again, I'll complain that our company will do that. I'm sure every company does that to themselves. They put self self governing rules on the, on each other. But like, yeah, the Mizuno Pro script font was something that we literally were not allowed to use for a number of years. The block M that so many people associate with Mizuno, which oh, yes. right up here on my wall, like literally, like we you are not allowed to put the block M on a product, even though that's so many people's like impression of Mizuno is that block M for a while. We literally wouldn't not even write our name on it. Like you, you just have the run burden. There was word Mizuno wasn't anywhere on it. Like again, 
come up with some silly rules for some reason. I don't know why, but ultimately, like to me, the Mizuno Pro line right now, the 221, 223, 225, they look so good and they look different because we wrote our name different. Mm-hmm. Any, I got this question from somebody. Any, uh, there was a Euro custom program, right, for mm-hmm. a long time, and that was a, a Japan only thing, this idea of, you know, decked out, fully custom, different finishes, blah, blah, blah. Kind of uh, that person that might be looking at, you know, an Epon product or, you know, Mayura or Fujimoto or mm-hmm. some more kind of niche Japanese product in Mizuno had Euro for there. Then a little bit of it trickled into Europe for like 28 minutes and then it was gone. <laughs> Is there... Any uh, any indication that that's going to be com- with? I mean, this is coming from a place of people love customization now, right? Yeah. Like that is such a major major thing with you know colors and fonts and stampings and finishes and all these kind of things. Is that something Mizuno might make available? Do you think in in the North American market ever? You know, we're all we're always exploring it. the The reason it kind of I'd say not would say fizzled out, but the reason why it never took off in Europe and why We've had a few efforts, you know, personally, I've had a few efforts to bring it over here, but ultimately like the scalability of the level of customization we're doing has been its downfall. Meaning like each of these heads, you know, you have the ability to do a number of different things. You have the ability to manipulate the offset, the top line, the sole thickness, the, you, you like everything, change logos around, move stuff all over the place. Um, ultimately, like these clubs come from an oversized drop. Which means with that oversized drop, I know Tony got to see this uh, over in Euro, was literally taking what looks like just the very basic forging and then a craftsman literally like grinding it down to the head size over a number of hours and days. So the number of craftsmen that are able to do that is very, very small. And the amount of time it takes is very, very long. So, you know, part of that discussion was, okay, if we were to implement this, let's just say we even picked one account and said, you you are the account that gets to do this. How many could we get per month, per year, per everything? And the numbers are so small just because of how personal it is that it's tough to execute. You know, then it becomes the conversation business-wise of, oh, well, what if we automate a couple of these processes? What if a machine grinds some of this? What if that? And then you're really losing what Euro is or what Euro is meant to be. And then, you know, there's also the side thing of, let's say a, a top tour player says, okay, you know what? I want to try something. You need to make me something like this. That guy's going to jump in line in front of that order. Absolutely. And this guy who's sitting there who just paid an ungodly amount for a set of iron is going to be pissed because it takes longer and longer. So there's logistical headaches to it, but in the future, it seems like where the world is headed, you know, customization, personalization are massive in everything. Golf is not alone in that, but golf is, you know, it's, it's man jewelry. We joke about that. Like, you know, people want something that's there, something that's unique. And if you could do that, there's totally a market for it, even to the point where you could drive the drive the quantity you sell down by how much you charge for it. You know, you could totally sure. do it that way, make it a supply and demand, get those curves to intersect and find out what that price point is. But we're not we're not doing that quite yet. You know, it's COVID, I think, revealed a lot of the whole industry's 
antiquated systems on a lot of things. So until we fix what's right at home, let's not get out over our skis. And we're in the process of doing that right now is making sure we're all set up for success on what we do. What's the basics of business before we go beyond that? You know what I mean? Well, and you say too, that there's a, there's a small number of guys who can actually kind of do the perform the whole Euro, Euro experience end to end. When you say small number, it's, it's like three, right? Three. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> there's turbo, there's, uh, there's Edo it's, yeah. it's, it's crazy. It's, there's very, very few and they're not getting any younger. I hate to say that. <laughs> yeah. Turbo will kill you the next time you see him. Oh, oh, he could. I, I'm not allowed in Japan now, so. <laughs> he, will not, he will bang the offset right out of you with a hammer. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're going to have a zero offset Vauchelle here in a minute. Like, just right out of there. Turbo so. will end you. Yes. All right. Last question from me. You're going on a road trip. What are your absolute must-have snacks in the car? Ooh, must have be a list snacks. of vegan nastiness. It's, it's, I'm must not have. Even, I'm going to go with Cheez-Its and Cherry Coke. <laughs> like oh, to, all right. To, all right. There we go. That, I love that's it. my go-to. And I don't want that's Chris's crispy. answer, actually. It's not far yeah. from my answer. Tell I don't me. want so extra wait. crispy. I don't want the white cheddar. I just a basic, regular Cheez-It. Just give me that and a Cherry Coke, and you're good to go. You could drive across the country with that. I, I love that. I love that <laughs> answer. Tony, what do you got? Must have yeah. in the car, road trip. I don't know. I'm not like, I don't like to eat on the road much. So I'll grab kind of whatever what? as long as it's crap. You know, <laughs> like a granola bar is all right. Something like that. I don't know. That might be the so, worst answer. I, I don't, I don't I like to, I don't like long car rides. <laughs> huh. I, I don't either. Right. Cheese well, it's for goldfish, sorry. which is the go-to. Oh, cheese it's above goldfish for sure. I'll go goldfish. Cheez-its. Oh, really? The colored ones. The colored ones. <laughs> yeah, I like the rainbow ones. I like those. <laughs> we always have a lot of those in the house. The other thing that's an absolute go-to, bugles. Bugle. Do you put them on your fingers? Bugle oh yeah, absolutely. Do <laughs> <laughs> like that in order. I think that's a go-to. And I'll, I mean, I'll stick with the 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 sugar. So yeah, Diet Coke, Coke, Coke Zero. Dr. Pepper. Um, I recently got into a lot of Dr. Pepper with lime in Ooh, it. Nice. Limes. Nice. Big, big fan of that recently. Is that is that like, do they sell that or do you just put lime in your Dr. Pepper? I just put the limes in okay. there. Yeah, I don't know if I missed out on a soft drink. Option. No, I'm trying to change the industry just one product category at a time. We'll, Did you ever try we'll, that we'll, like Starburst or whatever, like that milky whatever, the new Coke that's out that looks oh, like a Starlight? cherry Coke and that everyone accidentally picks up? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Have not tried it yet. Yeah, it looks disgusting. I got one bottle. That was fun. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Tony, any final questions? No, I'm good. I covered you got everything. nothing? I, no, Mr. I mean, Vachel, any questions for us? Donkey Show. You've been dying to ask the, the My Golf Spy staff, Uh-oh. but you just haven't had a platform. Well, I, this is your first platform. off, it's, I want to know who's going to win the U.S. Open. Tony, who's going to win it? Uh, Phil, I just, is Phil going? I, to win? I don't. Nobody knows who's going to win, but I mean, yes, desperately do. want Rory to win. Just good what about JT? I like Rory, Rory to win. I want yeah, JT. I mean, or that's Rory. a list, right? Rory, then JT. I mean, yeah. Jordan Spieth. It's just yeah. Like at this point, you just you just feel like you want somebody who who's there to win it to win it. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hard not to. 
I always root for Tom Hoagie just because he's named after a sandwich. <laughs> I would love to see Tom do it, and he's very uh, – he'd be a worthy champion as well. Is Schwartzel in the field? I assume so. Ooh. I don't know. Clear? I'm, Do they have tearing, ball, teeing up that clear ball? Cl- at the open, Imagine if he won the first live event, followed by Man. the U.S. Open. That would just—it would break the break golf. Oh, <laughs> oh, it would It'd be just, unrecoverable. They'd be like, it would be unrecoverable. We just shut it all down. <laughs> It'd be—I I don't know what you would do it's at close. We <laughs> just gotta I mean, close the golf store. <laughs> just, just call it good. I don't know. That's, ooh, that's brutal. Yeah, I'm going for Tom Hoagie and then like Rory. It. Like right. it. Yep. All right. Feeling good, Tony? No other questions, Vosh? Nothing? <laughs> no. Nothing else you want to know? What, uh-huh. I mean, as, a, as the Mizuno guy, I always got to bring it back to us. What, tell me your t- thoughts on, on our product line right now. Like, what can we be doing better? What could we be, what's, what's working, what's not working? What are we missing? This is a great you are, question. You are missing a copper underlay and a JPX iron. That's okay. You are not missing copper underlay. Leave it in the MP line. I keep trying to be an MP guy because they're always so pretty. Right. It's always just like I'm just a JPX guy, and that is that is my reality. Okay. That that's going to take some debate. It took us long enough to bring the Mizuno script to an MP, let alone pull a pull a copper underlay out of MP. That's like maybe make that JPX forge just a little bit smaller. Okay. So, that, that's me. I, I always say, like, when, when Mizuno is firing on all cylinders is when we make things smaller. You know, this, the second we make something a little bit bigger, that's usually, like, the, the step in the wrong direction. That's not there is, there is a, yeah, There's a product that springs to mind when you say that. Yeah, there's seven. I didn't say a little. I said a little bit bigger. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is Mizuno missing? So I would say, uh, I would say this, that... Um, I've been an MP guy for, for a long, long time, and right now I'm playing the um, 221 and 225 combo set, although the 223s have a certain amount of interest for me right now. Um, but I would love to see... It's funny, you mentioned the 62, um, mm-hmm. because that was one of my all-time favorites. I actually had a set of them in the Euro black finish when they nice. did the limited black finish on those. And what I loved about it is it very much was a player's cavity, but without the titanium, right? Mm -hmm. So like starting with the MP15, which I didn't personally love how those felt. I thought they were too hard and too clicky for a Mizuno iron um, because I was used to MP, you know, 29s into 33s, 62s, 67s you know, et cetera. So to me, the 15s were, were, I was like, yeah, this feels like something else. Um, but like that true players cavity back that would go toe to toe with like the, like my year CB 57s, mm-hmm. right. Which to me is one of the, uh, one of the better, um, straight up players CBs of all, all time. I really, really like that club a lot. The two twenty ones I think are phenomenal. For, for a muscle back. Not great for the guy that wants a little bit longer heel to toe. They're pretty right. compact. They're not like, you know, a lot of the guys that play TaylorMade, they like that little bit longer heel to toe blade. These Those aren't that, but I would love to see like a single piece forged 
uh, player's cavity back, even mm -hmm. if it severely overlaps with the 221, kind of like the, I think that kind of happened a little bit with the MP, right? With the 18s mm -hmm. and the SCs. Yep. I love the SCs. I mm -hmm. loved them. Um, I would like to see that club come back and, and called the DSs. There you go. <laughs> that's, that's, exactly, and then that's, that's what I need to have happen right there. Dynamic <laughs> Definitely stability. not for left-handers. Definitely <laughs> nothing for lefties. I want a, I want a dynamic stability. There you uh, go. And I want the MPDS. MPDS. <laughs> I do I have one more question. Because right now, and again, I know you guys study equipment, know a ton about it. Specs are such a big thing. You know what? What are lofts looking like? What What are things? Where Where are lofts like shaking out? And we've gotten to a point where, you know, let's say you're connecting your 50 degree wedge to a 15 degree three wood. What's the right? How do you think people should connect those dots? And I, I realize there's a fitting aspect to that. But basically, you know, an iron set has gone from eight pieces to seven pieces, but you're connecting basically the same dots. What are the right number of dots in that line? Boy, I don't know, because I'm, I'm not a guy like I don't I don't care about the gap between my three wood and five wood, for example, because okay. to me, like the I use my three wood is hit it as far as I possibly can. And then the five wood is is where sort of my actual target clubs begin. Mm -hmm. And on the other end. I don't care about distance on my 60 degree because I almost never swing it full. So that's all about utility versatility. So, you know, however many that is left, <laughs> is that like 12, 11? So you've got a driver, yeah, so three wood, five wood, and a 60 degree and a putter. That's five clubs. So you've, you've got nine right. left. So you need nine you dots. Nine dots. Yeah, so, so should I've got nine, nine dots. dots. Should those nine dots be, you know, however many degrees apart that is divided by nine? I think I like the idea of, of those even gaps, right? You did four degrees on the on the SELs and that mm -hmm. was like that was almost a story. Like, hey, we actually just did normal gaps here. Right. How about that? <laughs> this is the most um, this is the most perfectly aligned set we've ever done and it's only for lefties. Yeah, exactly. I don't I don't obsess I don't, don't obsess we over the numbers. For lefties. <laughs> I don't obsess over the numbers, but it, but it is the point where it just becomes because like I I'm locked into that 50, 54, 60. That's where mm -hmm. I want to be. I'm, I'm comfortable there. Everything goes exactly how far I want it to go. I don't want to mess with that. And so that, that to me, as we start moving down into the pitching wedge, now that's, that's where I'm like, all right, I can, I can live at 45. I like 45. Yeah. I absolutely have to. I can play around at 44 and probably bend it when nobody's looking to get it to 45. But, I mean, so that's just kind of where I build everything off of. And so you can't can't spread me out too much there. I, I'm just like you give me, you know, I had a what T200s that Titleist fit me into, and the the pitching wedge was 43, and it was, I mean, it was just a nightmare for me. I'm, I just <laughs> I, I couldn't make it work. And so it's you know doesn't really answer your question, I don't yeah. think. But it's like man, you just I, I get hey, you know, we we strengthen the lofts, but the CG's back and it launches higher and lands softer, et cetera, et cetera. But at some point, it like it it just creates too much problems at the other end of the bag where you're because I don't want a I don't want a big wedge with a deep center of gravity that goes way up in the air, right? It's like that's I have to build off those flights because that's where I score, and you can't mess up the rest of the bag chasing distance. Yeah, I think for me, it's two different things. One, it's like, yes, it gets into the nuance of fitting and this and that. and But 
when you're fitting somebody, like what would be the most important parameters that could change that answer? So let's just say for argument's sake, it's swing speed, because like when you use the, here's a plug for the Mizuno 3D shaft optimizer, <laughs> um, it will use a lot of different factors, right? And then basically suggest to you, here's where you should start using a hybrid, mm -hmm. right? or something where basically it's saying to you, the consumer, hey, you don't have enough swing speed to generate the ball speed necessary to get an optimal carry distance with a four iron or five mm -hmm. iron or whatever. And it says basically at that point, you need to switch to something that will, you know, use technology to give you those couple mile an hour ball speed that your swing speed isn't going to generate for you, right? So would there be one or two things like that where we could say quickly, okay, here is a set designed for you based specs, etc., based on three swings and a swing speed mm -hmm. and your tempo athleticism release, whatever, say, boom, there it is. And this is how you should gap it to start. Because maybe if you're a higher swing speed player, four degrees is way too much in a three iron, four iron, five iron. That's going to mm -hmm. create a 15 to 20 yard gap, whereas two degrees or three degrees will create maybe the 10 to 12 degree gap that you actually want. But if I'm a slower swing speed player, maybe I can get away with not even 14 clubs. I would argue 14 clubs is too many yeah, for a lot of people enough. with an average swing speed yeah. or lower. Where... I think you need about 20, 25 clubs. That's probably oh, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, this you is know, the right answer. I need, like I need when my I, long putter, when my I short asked my putter. dad, <laughs> hey, I mean, my dad has eight clubs. He hits 150 yards, mm -hmm. you know, because they, because it's like, oh, well, my six iron goes 150. It just goes on this trajectory. And then my seven iron goes 150. It's this. And my eight iron goes almost 150, but it does this, <laughs> you know? So I would love to see something like that where it's like, hey, tell me how fast you swing. Do A, B, and C. And here's your ideal gapping. Yeah, and I think there's there's definitely something to that. I know it's the the industry has kind of bit itself in the in the foot just by the fitting club is getting stronger and stronger. Yet you're connecting the same dot down on this end. So it's like, it to me like the the fact that there's two and three degree gaps on one side, five degree gaps on the the, the wrong side, is so twisted like everything the, yes. the teeth of the comb should be finer on the short iron side and they can be wider on the long iron side where you're trying to dial something in so it, it's interesting like how who's going to fix that problem first and how do you in the world of the current fitting i need a seven iron to do x so how do you break that is is the tricky thing right now need a marketing guy from mizuno to come out and say hey if you don't swing it past X miles an hour per hour, you only need 10 clubs. We're going to be the first OEM to sell you fewer clubs than you can actually legally have because we're looking out for the consumer, not just selling as many clubs as we can, Mr. Yeah. Average Golfer. Well, I think and that's how... And I don't think I've ever seen that, though, right? Gapping mm -mm. sort of a, a swing speed tie-in to... As a, as a means to guide your gaps. I don't know that anybody's ever tried that. Because like you said, right it's like, now. let's just... Let's just crunch it on the long end and spread it out on the short end because we crunch it too much on the long end. Yeah, exactly. So it, uh, the, the world and the, the retail world was so hung up on eight-piece iron sets and now seven-piece iron sets or whatever that, you know, there's the fear of breaking that when in actuality that's probably not the right answer for a lot of people. So 
And it's funny how you'll even talk to retailers and they'll say people will buy the four iron even though they know they can't hit it and literally say their punch out game is elite. That's why they need it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's my desert club. It's my punch out right. club. <laughs> I'd be I'd be a much better golfer with an elite punch out game. Exactly. <laughs> Wouldn't <that>. we all? <laughs> all right. So when's that when's that iron set coming out, Vosh? The the MPDS and then the twelve piece average golfer set. Yeah, I think the embargo's tomorrow. I think we'll be good to go. So <laughs> That's more lead time than we get most of the time. So that's right. That's about what I got on the next one. Jesus. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I mean, so many things. Vosh, thank you so much for your time coming on. Ladies and gentlemen out there, comment. Find us. Follow us. We're, we're all out on the interwebs. Golf Spy T, Golf Spy C. Find Mizuno, drop them a line. Let them know what you think about what they're doing. I think that's a great question. What are they missing? Consumers, what would you like to see uh, Mizuno come out with? Give us Follow give us me at Boach 68. Fire at me. What, what, what can I do better? <laughs> Let him know he actually wants feedback and will will respond to you. Thank you, everybody. Until next time. We out.